Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's turn to Ruth chapter 2. And last week we saw what we called profiles in godliness. We saw two godly people. Um, We saw Boaz being the protector, Boaz being the provider, Boaz being a righteous man. We saw Ruth's humility. Remember what Ruth's big question was to Boaz? Why me? Why have you been gracious to me? What what did I do to deserve this? And um, basically what, what attracted Boaz to Ruth was her conversion. The, the, the story of her leaving all in Moab to come uh, to, to follow her mother-in-law. And then he's very gracious to her. If you remember, he gives her 30 ephahs. What was it? I can't remember what it was. Ephah, yeah, 30, 30 bushels. or It was a lot. So about 30 pounds of barley. And she has enough for a doggy bag. And so that's how the story ended last week, was she was blessed with all of this barley... And so she gets to go back home to Naomi. So we've kind of forgotten about Naomi for a little bit because the scene has shifted to Ruth. But let's just talk about Naomi. What is Naomi's name? Her name means pleasant. But when she came back to Bethlehem, she said, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. So she's pretty much still kind of a bitter, lonely widow who's lost all and the big question that we've got to ask is, here's the big question. The big looming question in Naomi's mind is, how will God bring restoration and redemption to her? How will God vindicate himself? If God was the source of her suffering, then how will he turn things around? Psalm chapter 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And that song, yes, Lord. Okay, so, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So, for Naomi, there's light at the end of the tunnel. The big question is, what is that light? How is God going to take care of her? So let's pick up in Ruth chapter 2, verse 17, and let's read to the end of the chapter. This is the third act in the big, or the third scene in in the second big act in chapter 2. So, verse 17. This is Ruth. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is... Ta-da! Boaz! And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this young, with the, his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right. There's a little bit of comedy going on here because what's an ephah of barley? Maybe 30 to 50 pounds. So what happens? Ruth comes back home with this big gunny sack, 30-pound bag on her back. After one day, remember, and she walks in, and what does Naomi do? She kind of gets a little excited. But think about what Ruth's coming home to. Okay, Remember Ruth's confession a few weeks ago? She committed herself totally to Naomi. She pledged her faithfulness to her mother-in-law. And now she comes home to serve Naomi, a woman who, by the way, would be very difficult to handle. Ruth has a lot of patience, grace, humility, and stamina to live with Naomi, the bitter one, Marah. Okay, so before we even start to talk about this story for a moment, I want us to deal with the whole issue of bitterness. Can't deal with the book of Ruth without dealing with Naomi's name, Marah, which was changed to bitterness. And so this is just something that I believe I've seen over my years in ministry. Um, bitterness is a crippling sin that plagues many Christians. I've met far too many Christian people <coughs> who have been overtaken with bitterness. And it's not a pretty picture. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be joyful, demonstrate... Last time I checked, bitterness is not one of the fruit of the Spirit, is it? Okay, it's not. So, bitterness... How do you define bitterness? Well, I think we all know what it is, but I've just put some thoughts down here. Bitterness manifests itself in having a hard heart that harbors resentment. It's a persistent sourness. Bitterness happens when you never see any good in anything, but you always see the wrong. You're always critical and quick to point out problems and the negatives. Do you know anybody like that? It's plagued by bitterness. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has got some good words on bitterness. Listen to what he says. <coughs> Quote, I grant there may be genuine grievances. But what makes us bitter is that we ponder them and meditate upon them and stay with them. In other words, we nurse our grievances. We dwell on them. We pay great attention to them. And if we are tending to forget them, we deliberately bring them back and allow them to work up us and again a state of bitterness. What does it mean to nurse your what does it mean to nurse bitterness? Nurse your grievances. Give it food for you, you feed it. Okay. Now, let's just talk about Naomi for, for a moment. Let's be really realistic with Naomi. Did she have valid reasons to grieve? Yes. Absolutely. She lost her husband. She lost her children. 
She was all alone. If Dawn, if I died and my two boys died and Dawn was left alone, I would say it would totally be appropriate for her to grieve. If she didn't grieve, there'd be something wrong. So there are appropriate times to grieve. And by the way, as I'm talking about this, just to let you know, I think it's May 13th, Saturday, May 13th, Andrea Waitley's doing a grief workshop here at the church on a Saturday. Uh, so if that's something that you uh, know someone that's interested in that, um, it's basically how do you grieve um, biblically. But the question that you ask here is, and this is a tough question, when does grieving and mourning end and bitterness begin? How do we get through painful circumstances but make sure we don't fall into the sin of bitterness? I don't know if I have a cookie-cutter answer for that because I think it's different for each person. But there are times where you will grieve. You will mourn. But the question is, how long does that go until it turns into bitterness against God? Bitterness against life? And you just basically turn into a bitter person that you've never gotten over your, your grieving. So let me just say this. Hurting and grieving is okay. I'm not here to say you should never grieve, you should never hurt. God has created us to mourn and to hurt, but eventually we must move on and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to restore to us the joy of our salvation. So, before we actually get into the book of Ruth, I wanted us just to look at this, just take a side trip and talk about bitterness. What does the Bible have to say about bitterness? It has a lot to say. Um, Ephesians 4.30 says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, let's just stop right there. Do not grieve who? The Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? It's kind of a weird concept to think about making God himself sad. But what saddens, what grieves, what brings sorrow to the Holy Spirit? You may ask, what, what grieves the Holy Spirit? We don't have to guess because in just the next few verses, Paul gives us the list of what grieves the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Verses 31 to 32, let all bitterness, notice that's the first on the list. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what grieves the Holy Spirit? Bitterness. And what does Paul tell us to do with bitterness and with wrath? He says, put it away. It's a command. It means to remove it. Literally, in the, in the image, in the, in the Greek, it's almost like you're sweeping it away. Like you've got a pile of bitterness and you're, it's all piled up. Now, what would happen in your house? I'm going to tell you a really gross story, so that, hopefully I'll get back to my point. But I'm trying to make an illustration that just popped into my head. When I was a freshman in college, 
at Baylor University. I was on the first floor of, of and I didn't realize it was the wild floor. I, I didn't realize until after the fact that I should have been on the fourth floor, which was the more studious floor. So down the hall, these guys had a contest in the room to see how long they could go in the semester without throwing away any trash. So I did not walk into their room because you could smell their room before you even got to their room. But as you looked into the room, literally, probably about knee high of just trash all over the place. Okay, so think that image in your mind for a moment. If that's sin, and that's bitterness, and that's clamor and anger, and it's, it's meant to sit there, what's it going to do? It's going to stink you up and everybody else around you up. The image Paul has is you're going to gather all that together. You're going to take a, a broom and a dustpan and maybe some barrels for that room. And you're going to sweep it away. You're going to get rid of it. That's really the Greek word there for put away. Um, it's like sweeping it away like a pile of trash on the floor that needs to be swept away out of sight and gotten rid of. So your college experience is never going to be the same, again, as you think about that room. I still have nightmares of that room. <laughs> I'm just joking. <coughs> so sweep it away. Get rid of it. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect those around you. So the first thing we see about bitterness is it grieves the Holy Spirit. That should be enough. If it grieves the very Holy Spirit of God, it should be enough to put it away. And it's not a suggestion, is it? Does Paul say, if you feel like it, get rid of it? It's a command. Put it away. Get rid of it. Okay? So what's another danger of bitterness? Well, let's look at what Hebrews chapter 12, 14 and 15 tells us about bitterness. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. A root of bitterness. It's going to defile you. Bitterness is going to make you unholy. We often think of big unholy sins like what? Murder, adultery, theft. Those are the big sins that make you unholy. What does this say right here? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by many, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness, a root of, what's a root of bitterness? Why is he talking about it as a root? Okay, so... If you look at, okay, so I've often talked about root sins and fruit sins. Have I not? So, okay, here's a tree. Here's the ground. Here's the root system. Okay. Oftentimes, you have root sins, and then you have fruit sins. That's fruit. Okay. Pick whatever fruit you want that grows on a tree. When you look at that tree, what do you automatically see? The fruit, right? 
Fruit's not going to grow unless it has what? Roots. Okay. What oftentimes happens is there are sins deep down in your heart that have taken root way far underneath the surface of what maybe even you can see that manifest themselves in the things that you can see. So, for example, root sins would be like bitterness. Root sins would be like lust, would be like pride, envy. A fruit sin would be, okay, if lust is the root, fruit may be sexual immorality or lying or stealing. Something that you do is an outward action that, that usually produces fruit. And oftentimes the way that we deal with sin is what do we want to do? Try to kind of get kind of do some cosmetic work here on the fruit sins. If you don't deal with the root, you're never going to deal with the fruit. And so when it talks about a root of bitterness, what he's talking about is there are some sins that get deep down in you. And if they get deep down in you and embed deep down in you, they are going to grow and spread and take root in you. And it says it's going to defile many. It's not just going to defile you. It's going to defile others. It's going to pop up in all these different types of, of sins. And this goes back to, to Deuteronomy because... Um, it talks about a root of bitterness. Now, it says you cannot see the Lord if you have bitterness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, what's unholiness in the context of that passage of Scripture? Bitterness. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? If you are bitter, your ability to have close fellowship with God is hindered. Would you agree or disagree? The more holy we are in our lifestyles, the more intimate we have with the relationship with Christ and we see the Lord, we have fellowship with Him. The more we have sin in our lives, the more it's going to prevent us from doing that. In bitterness, if I were to ask you, what's the big top ten sin on the list that's going to be really, really unholy? Would bitterness make your top? For some of you, it may not be like, ah, I didn't even think about that one. Let's talk about Deuteronomy 29, 18-19. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Here, Moses equates bitterness with stubbornness and a hard heart. So what did Barney Fife used to say? Nip it. Nip it in the bud. You guys, don't, you guys, some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking. You guys never watch Andy Griffith? Nip it in the bud. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us? When a, root, when a root of bitterness grows and spreads, it defiles many. It spreads its cancerous poison to everyone in its path. Let me ask you a question. Is bitterness contagious? Yes. You get a group of people together and you start talking about stuff and complaining about stuff and belly aching. Um, 
Is it easier to bellyache and join in, or is it easier to stop them and say, let's, let's, let's stop, stop this conversation? What's easier to do? Join in. Because we want to nurse our wounds, we want to live in our bitterness, and we want to find other people to take up our bitterness with us. Pretty soon everybody's bitter, and it's going to defile many. It's going to be poisonous. Okay, so number one, bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit. Number two, bitterness is a root that if it spreads, it's going to defile many. All right, let's look at one other place. And I will say the third thing about bitterness is it's demonic. That should get your attention. James 3, 14 through 18. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay. When I say bitterness is demonic, it's not, this is, what I'm not saying, okay, is this. What I'm not saying is that if you're bitter, you're somehow demon-possessed. I'm not saying that, okay? Because that means there'll be a lot of demon-possessed people in the world, okay? But Satan loves to get a foothold in a person's life who's angry and bitter. When Satan has free reign, there will result chaos, jealousy, Selfish ambition, and as James says, every vile practice. If you go back a few verses in, in Ephesians where it talked about uh, grieving the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians 4, 26-27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I think the NIV says, give no, the devil no foothold. Okay? So, as you think about your life tonight question you're going to ask is, is your name Marah? Is your name bitter? Are you nursing your grievances? Are you, are you a bitter person? I can't answer that for you. Only God knows. But I, I'm sure at some point in your life you've had to deal with either feelings of bitterness, mourning, resentment. How do you draw close to Christ? Well, the only way I can tell you is that the Holy Spirit has to do a deep work in your heart to root out the bitterness and replace it with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and only the Holy Spirit can do that deep work. Um, so if you are a bitter person, number one, you've got to be aware that you are bitter, and you probably know it. And number two, pray and ask the Lord to give you um, the fruit of the Spirit to overcome that bitterness. And talk to somebody if you need, if you need help. Okay? So let's get back to Ruth and Naomi. I thought it would just be important to talk about bitterness because <coughs> she said, don't call, me, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. She had legitimate reasons to grieve. And she probably could have become even more bitter. But God is going to providentially make the light at the end of the tunnel. So Ruth comes stumbling into the house with a 30-pound bag on her back and Naomi's lies light up. This is the first instance of joy or happiness or life we've seen in this bitter woman. 
her mother-in-law saw what she gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? The Hebrew is actually pretty funny here when you look at the original language because it's, it's almost like, Where in the world did you glean today? It's like the way, that's kind of the way she said it there. She's, she's so excited. She just, she blurts out. She's jazzed. She's excited. Blessed be the man who, uh, where in the world did you, you went out there to get just like maybe a little bit of barley and you came back with like six months worth of, worth of barley in one day. Where in the world did you go, girl? I mean, that's kind of like the way Naomi's acting. And then to make matters even, even better, the storyteller gives us some dramatic tensions that you don't quite get in your English translations. The ESV probably does the best here. Um, but the way it's worded in the Hebrew, it's in a way that emphasizes every word really slowly. The name. Of the man with whom I worked is, pregnant pause, wait for it, wait for it, Boaz. Now, after this pregnant pause, Naomi is jumping with joy. She knows what's going on. Ruth is clueless, like, why is my Jewish mother-in-law getting all excited here? Well, there's something that she doesn't know. Naomi sees the invisible hand of God's grace. And so this time, what does Naomi do? Naomi speaks a blessing over Boaz, and that should be the name of the Lord, not the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And then she reiterates a key theme in the book of Ruth, the hesed, the kindness of God, that faithful, tenacious, loyal love that God has for his people. Notice what she says, verse 6, 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where in the world did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord Yahweh, whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. What is she saying? God's been gracious. God's not forsaken us. We are seeing God's hand of grace here, Ruth. Just as Naomi attributed her loss to the hand of God, now she attributes this gain to the hand of God. Does God ever abandon his people? Joy comes in the morning. Uh, times may be tough. There may be stinging providences, but God is a merciful God who's pledged his covenant love to his people in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that things are always going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's always going to go the way you want it to go. But does joy come in the morning? Yes. God never leaves or forsakes you. God is going to come through. God's going to take care. God's going to come to the rescue because what's his character? He is a God of chesed. Trying to wake you guys up tonight. He's a God of steadfast love. What did God say to Moses? You remember the story of Moses? Moses says to God, I want to see all your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. If you see my glory, you're going to die. But here's what I can do. I can hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will let my glory pass, and you'll be able to see my backside glory. And so God does that. And as God's glory passes by, God gives Moses a word. 
about his character. And we find that in Exodus 34, 67, which is the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament, repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. It says this, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, there's that word, steadfast love, has said, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Highlight that passage of Scripture in your Bible and go back to it. The Lord's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's God's character. That's God's nature. That's who God is for His people. That's who God is for His people. And Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 8, 31-32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's for you. Who can be against you? The answer is nobody. So Naomi's excited because she knows God's in control. Ruth, as we looked at last week, didn't just happen to walk by chance into some field and get lucky. Out of all the fields she could have walked out into, where does God providentially lead her? To Boaz's field. And what does Naomi say? Look at what Naomi says. And we're introduced to this whole idea of a redeemer. Look at verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord who's has said, whose steadfast love, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our goels, one of our redeemers, a kinsman redeemer. You cannot study the book of Ruth without understanding what a kinsman redeemer is. The Hebrew word there is goel. G-O apostrophe E-L, a goel, a redeemer, a close kinsman, a relative redeemer. Now, what in the world was this? What's a redeemer? What's a kinsman redeemer? Um, there's five things that the Old Testament teaches about a kinsman redeemer. So let's talk about this because you can't jump into the book of Ruth and understand these cultural things without understanding some background. So we don't have kinsmen redeemers today. We don't have this cultural. We don't have these types of laws. So we need to understand the laws of the day, the culture of the day, especially back in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus, how all this was laid out. So number one, just to kind of tell you what this is, um, this was an Israelite family law that was laid out in Leviticus and Numbers and was basically to help propagate the family name. What was so important back in that culture that you carried on the name so that you could have property and so that the name was carried on? You give it to your firstborn son and he would give it on. And so you're, you, if, if you died without any offspring in that culture, that was the worst thing that can happen to you. Um, and so this was a way to make sure that the family name got carried on. So there were five obligations of a kinsman redeemer or a close relative who had to fulfill by law. So by legally... A, legally, these were the obligations of a kinsman redeemer by Israelite law. Here's the first. For some, if for some economic reasons a family member had to sell land 
the kinsman or Goel was responsible for repurchasing the property according to Leviticus 25. Okay, so if you had to sell land because you were, you know, you got into economic straits, it was your family plot and you had to sell it, the kinsman could have to come back and repurchase it so that you could have that land back if you weren't able to get it back. Okay, number two. If a family member was forced to sell themselves into slavery, a goel or a redeemer would buy them out or redeem them out of slavery according to Leviticus 25. Sometimes in that culture, if things got really bad and you got in economic straits, the best thing for you to do was to sell yourself into slavery so that at least you could get a meal and, and, and put yourself in a position where you wouldn't be totally destitute, but you were still a slave. And so your kinsman redeemer had to buy you out of slavery. Number three, he was responsible for avenging the killing of a family member by tracking down and executing the killer according to Numbers 35. So if I got killed and I got murdered, my brother Scott would have to go to my wife Dawn and say, let's go hunt down the killer and go find him and avenge him. And that was what the kinsman redeemer had to go do. So bounty hunter, I guess, <laughs> what you're saying there. All right. Number four. If a wrong was committed against a family member who died, the Goel would pay the restitution money according to Numbers 5. Okay, so there was some type of restitution money that had to be paid if there was a wrongful, if there was a wrongful death. Lastly, a Goel or a Redeemer would also come to the aid of a needy family member and assist them in lawsuits to see that justice was done. Okay, now, you may think, that's a great list, Pastor Sean. I'm glad you gave us that bit of trivia from the Old Testament. Who cares? Here's the thing about it that you need to understand. The unusual thing about Naomi's happiness and joy that Boaz is a redeemer is that none of these redeemer texts make any reference to the responsibility to marry a widow of a deceased relative. As a matter of fact... Naomi was not a victim of any of the above issues with the possible exception of number one. At this point, we don't know. Maybe Elimelech had to sell his plot of land during the time of the famine. We don't know. But what we do know is the text tells us, or we, the text doesn't tell us, but what we do or don't know is that we, Ruth and Naomi weren't slaves. The text never says they were slaves. We know their husbands hadn't been murdered and needed to be avenged. We knew there was no restitution money coming their way for a crime committed against them, and we knew they weren't in a lawsuit. So, what is Boaz's responsibility to this family as a kinsman redeemer? Legally, he is under no obligation. Now, we don't know how close of a relative he is. It just says he's a close relative. Um, he probably wasn't Elimelech's brother. She probably would have said he's my, my brother-in-law. It was probably a cousin. And he wasn't legally obligated to marry Naomi, much less Ruth. Who's the one who is the relative? Is it Ruth or Naomi? Naomi. Naomi. So if there's any type of relationship thing that needs to happen, it would be with Naomi. 
So he's really technically legally under no obligation to marry Bo or to marry Ruth or Naomi. Legally. So why is Naomi so happy? What plan is she concocting to ensure the restoration? If you just go by the legal issues, Boaz is not obligated to marry anyone, and he's really not obligated to be a kinsman redeemer. By the way, the word redeemer should be a familiar word to you. It really means rescuer, the one who comes to the rescue. It was often spoken of God himself in the Old Testament. Psalm 107, 1 through 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Notice how that psalm takes together the hesed and the redeemer language together. God is good. His hesed, his steadfast love endures forever. He is, he has redeemed us. We are the redeemed. He's bought us. He's purchased us. He's rescued us. God's rescued us from trouble. From sin, from slavery to sin. Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. But now thus says the Lord, the one who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. I have redeemed you, Israel. You're my possession. I have redeemed you. Lamentations 3, 57-58. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You've taken up my cause, O Lord. You've redeemed my life. Let me just ask you a question. Is God under any legal or moral obligation to redeem us? Why does he do it then? Out of his sheer love for sinners. And this is a picture of Boaz. Because here's the, the picture of the gospel. Here's the picture of Jesus in Boaz. If Boaz is going to come to the rescue of Ruth and Naomi, it's not because the law is somehow demanding him to do it or forcing his hand. It's because of his grace and his willingness to show mercy. It's a voluntary grace, and that is exactly what Jesus shows us. He's not obligated to love us or show us mercy or even to die for us, but because of his grateful love for us, he chose to go to the cross. Don't ever, ever, ever let the words come out of your mouth, God, you owe me. Does God owe us anything? Yes, he does. The one thing God owes us is the wages of sin is death. So if God owes you anything, it's death. It's separation. It's sin. So God chooses out of His free grace, out of His steadfast love, out of His mercy to choose to save us, to love us. And that's what Jesus said. He, Jesus said in John 10 as the good shepherd. John 10, 17-18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to. Nobody forced him to. He wasn't obligated to. He did it out of sheer mercy. 
And that's what Boaz is going to do here. There's no legally anything binding on Boaz to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He is a picture of Jesus and the fact that he does it voluntarily. He does it graciously. He does it because he wants to do it. And that's how Jesus treats us. Now, Naomi has something up her sleeve. What does she tell Ruth? Verse 22 Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in other fields you be assaulted. Okay. What's this all about? Remember they came back at harvest time? According to the Israelite calendar at that time, the barley harvest was about one month. Remember they came back right at the beginning of barley harvest. So there's a month. And it was followed by wheat harvest which is probably another two months. So from April to June, about now, in Israel, she would have three months to do what? What? Win Boaz. The question you've got to ask is, what's Naomi's hidden agenda? What's this good Jewish mother-in-law planning? Two to three months is good enough time for Ruth and Boaz to have close proximity. They would see each other regularly. And who knows what might happen next? Have not we seen these supposed coincidences happening? What's going to happen next that's going to, quote unquote, surprise us? Now remember, what does she say? Stay close to the young women lest you be assaulted. What did we talk about last week? It's the time of the judges. She could be dangerously harassed, assaulted. Uh, basically, she was fresh meat out there for these little Jewish boys um, to pick up a new wife, if you thought about it. Um, so, verse 23, So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, leaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, probably about two to three months, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, she works through the harvest, and yet there's a deafening thud at the end of verse 23 that's supposed to jar us. She lived with her mother-in-law. That's real romantic. That's real promising. At the end of two months, two things come to a screeching halt. First of all, the provision of food comes to an end. No more barley harvest, no more wheat harvest, no more opportunity for food. They would have to fend for themselves or at least wait for the next, store up enough to wait, you know, wait. But secondly, what would also come to an end? She wouldn't have an opportunity to be out there with Boaz. Regular contact with Boaz. So Act 2, Chapter 2, ends with an unsettling twist. It's almost like a letdown. Boaz. Ta-da! The godly man. Ruth. The godly woman. They're brought together providentially out on the fields. And for two months they work together. And the romance could be brewing. And they could be getting close. But how does the story end? She lived with her mother-in-law. 
How would you expect it to end? Ruth and Boaz went on a date. Well, that happens in chapter 3. We have to get there. We'll get there next week. So here's the unsettling thing about it that you may just think about Ruth for a moment. The question you get coming back for Ruth is, was it worth it to forsake all in Moab and come back to Bethlehem? Was it really worth it for her to stay faithful to Naomi? Was it really worth it for her to embrace Yahweh, the God of Israel? And there could be some anxiety. Did Ruth miss an opportunity? Did her luck run out? Now that the harvest is over, will Boaz be out of the picture? Will he lose interest? Will he go on to bigger and better things? It's a sad letdown here at the end of the chapter because what do you have? Two widows just at home waiting. Waiting for God to intervene. Or does Naomi have something up her sleeve? What will happen next? Is there hope? Now he does this, Storyteller does this to us every week. He leaves us with a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? But there is hope for Naomi. And that's the important takeaway from chapter 2 is there's hope. Because a bitter, desperate woman is brought to new life. And she's given hope to the prospect of a redeemer. There's going to be one that's going to come to her rescue. Now, what does this mean for us? Those who were once dead in our sins and trespasses, those who were blinded in our sins and enslaved to ungodliness and in darkness and despair. This is really bad spelling. The true Redeemer, Jesus Christ, has come to our rescue. He's made us alive with Him through the new birth. He has shown us the ultimate, has said, that gracious, tenacious, loyal, covenant love that's unconditional and merciful and voluntarily laid down His life for us on the cross. We have a Redeemer. And what does Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 say? That God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast." This is the greatest message that we can hear. There is a Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer. We're going to sing that this Sunday because what's, what's the whole thing about she knows her Redeemer lives. There's a, there's a living Redeemer. His name's Boaz. For us at Easter, who's our living Redeemer? Jesus is our Redeemer who's conquered the tomb and has risen again. And our Redeemer lives. Now, I didn't want to go into chapter 3 because it takes a long time to unpack a lot of what's going on there, but I don't want to finish with Ruth tonight. There's no, you're not getting off, what time is it? Half an hour early. So I've got what they say in Cajunville. Has your husband ever called a lanyap? No. I've got a lanyap for you guys. 
lamb yap is Cajun for something a little extra. Something a little, a little extra. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. You guys always want to do Revelation, right? So, well, since we have time, um, <coughs> let's turn to chapter 5, and I want us to talk about the word redeemer, ransom, um, the, the word... Okay, so we, we got some key words, especially in the book of Ruth. We've got hesed, we've got bitter, we've got goel, we've got redeemer. So when we talk about redemption, so the word is redemption, the word is redeem, the word is ransom. It all comes from the same Greek family of words, those, those words redemption, redeem, and ransom. And basically the idea in the Greek language is more of a slave market, okay? So in the Greek culture of Jesus' time, of, of Paul's time, there were slave markets where you had slaves. Now, don't think about slaves like we have in Civil War times. It was all different types of slaves, but basically you were property and you were owned the only way you could get out of being in slavery was for somebody to redeem you. And how they redeemed you was to pay the ransom price to your slave owner, and that would release you from slavery. Okay, so question. Are those without Christ in slavery? What kind of slavery? Spiritual slavery to sin, to Satan, to their flesh. Can they escape themselves? No, they have to be bought out. What buys out sinners from spiritual slavery? Peter will tell us it's the precious blood of Christ. He ransomed us. He redeemed us. He bought us. Okay? So, the picture of ransoming, the picture of buying comes to full fruition in Revelation. Where do we first see the idea of ransom? In Exodus, right? What's going on in Exodus? The Israelites are where? They are in what? They are in Egyptian bondage. They are in slavery to harsh taskmasters. Okay, how is God going to get them out of slavery? Does God say, hey, get yourselves out? Pack up and leave. You've got the ability to do it. Just go up to Pharaoh and say, hey, dude, let us out of here. We told Moses to do that, but, Moses, but what was God's means for getting them out of slavery? God said, go kill a Passover lamb. Put blood on the lintel and doorpost of the house. And when the angel of death passes over and sees the blood, your firstborn will be spared. If there is no blood your firstborn will die. And so that night, the destroyer, the angel of death, came through Exodus, and then God redeemed or ransomed or purchased, if you will, Israel out of Egyptian slavery through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. Old Testament picture of 
redemption. New Testament picture of redemption, buying out of slave markets. In Exodus, what was the nation that was redeemed? Israel. Was there any other nations? In the Exodus. Just Israel. When we get to Revelation, Revelation is called the new Exodus. I challenge you to go read Revelation. There are more references in the Old Testament, in the book of Revelation, than any other New Testament book. And almost all of them are in reference to Exodus imagery. So the book of Revelation is the new exodus of the new people of God being redeemed by the new Passover lamb. And it's not just the nation of Israel, but it's the whole, all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues. Okay, so let's go to Revelation chapter 5. This is the scene where John, the apostle, is in the throne room of God. He's been transported up to the throne room. And again, this is apocalyptic literature. I don't have time to set the stage for how to read Revelation, but... um, We'll just talk through some of this apocalyptic literature. So chapter 5, Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Okay. Who's seated on the throne? If you go back to chapter 4, it's God the Father. And what does he have in his right hand? A scroll that's written within and on the back. Now, this is probably the scroll of destiny that God is going to unfold upon the earth in judgment. And it's written on the front and on the back because it has all of his plans. And it's sealed with seven seals to represent perfection. So this is God's perfect ordained plan to bring about his will on the earth. And what's the angel's question? Who is worthy to walk up to God and grab that out of his hand? Is anybody worthy to go walk up and grab God's plan out of God's hand? The only person that's worthy is if you're God in the flesh. Jesus. So, Verse 3, no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So what's John doing? It's hopeless. There's no human person. There's no angel. Nobody can go inaugurate, institute God's plan for for the ages Nobody is holy enough. Nobody's worthy enough. Everybody's too sinful to, to go accomplish this. So if God's going to accomplish it, God's got to accomplish it. So I sat and I weeped because what's going to happen? And then verse 5, one of the elders said to me, and, and don't ask me what these elders are. I don't know if they're angelic beings. I don't know if they're actual people. Um, they're just elders. And what did he say to John? Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Don't cry, John, because there is someone who's able to take the seal, the scroll. A lion. And not just any lion, but who? The lion from the tribe of Judah. 
the root of David. He has conquered. That's the Greek word Nike. He can open it. So who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Okay, so what is John going to expect to see when he turns around? He's going to expect to see a lion, a roaring lion, ready to go conquer. When you expect that's what John's going to turn around and see? Because the elders just told him, a lion, the tribe of Judah, is going to take this scroll from God's hand. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lion. No, is that what it says? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So what does John see? Does he see a lion or a lamb? Yes. Does he see a lion or a lamb? This is apocalyptic. This is imagery. Don't draw this literally as if you have a pen and paper. It's a vision. He's the lion slash lamb. Now, when you think of a lion, what do you think of? Power, authority, fierce. When you think of a lamb, what do you think of? Death. Okay. So how does Jesus conquer? Does he conquer as a lion or does he conquer as a lamb? Yes. That's always a good, that's a good answer for revelation. Yes. Okay, so he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Don't take this literally as if there's a lamb there with seven literal horns. Seven, is a, seven horns is a number of, it's symbolic of perfection, of, of authority. Uh, seven eyes, Jesus sees all things. The number seven is symbolic of completeness or perfect. So this lamb, this Jesus, verse 7 he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne, or before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, let me draw this for a moment. When you go back and look at chapter 4, you are in the throne room, and there's the throne... And God the Father is seated on the throne, but you can't see him because he's brilliant, he's shining, he's bright. And closest to the throne are these four living creatures. And they've got wings. I, don't, I mean, you can't draw them. They're just four living creatures. They're the highest angelic beings that are the closest to the throne of God. And then around them, you have what? The 24 elders. 24 being a multiple of 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, a totality of representation of the people of God. Don't ask me who these elders are. Are they angels? Are they elders? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But what do they do? What does it say there? Verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders do what? They fall down before the Lamb. What are they holding in their hands? A harp. Now, when you think of a harp, don't think of some guy up there in a diaper, a baby in a diaper, going brrrink, brrrink. I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, it's a kitaron. A harp in the Bible is more like a guitar. It's a joyous type thing. Now, don't ask me how they're playing with four living, like with living, I don't know how this is all happening. 
the symbolism here is that this is joyous, heartfelt, exuberant, humble worship before King Jesus. And they're going to sing a new song. What's the song that they sing? Let's look at their song. This is what they're singing. This is what they're going to be singing in heaven. This is what the songs in heaven sound like. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain, slaughtered literally. And by your blood, you what? Ransomed. There's the word there. You ransomed. You bought. You purchased. People for who? For God. From where? Every tribe, language, people, and nation. Not just Israel. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why are they praising Jesus? Because of his death on the cross, being slaughtered as the lamb, buying people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. So, is God a God of only the Israelites? If not, none of us would be here. He is a global God. And you see here every tribe, a representative. I don't think this is saying that everybody's going to be saved. I don't, I don't think you can, I, this is not universalism where every single person is going to be saved. He, he, he ransomed people for God from, out of. So I think there's going to be a representation of God's people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And when we talk about tribes, language, peoples, and nations, we're not talking about countries. We're talking about ethnes. Nations in the Bible means more than just geopolitical nation states. It means ethno-linguistic people groups. In India, there's about 4,000 of those people groups. That, there's probably 4,000 different languages. So, just among the, um, the tribal people that we go to in India, there's 13 tribes in that area. And they all speak somewhat of a different language. And they're ethnically different. So God is doing a work in the world right now through missions, through global missions, to send people out to share the gospel of Jesus so that this can become a reality. Now what ends up happening? Verse 11, Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Okay, there's another layer there. Who's next? The voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. Okay, so what's the outer thing here? Okay, center of the throne room. God. Actually, Jesus too. Four living creatures. They're bowing down. 24 elders. They're bowing down. Who do you have next? A buku of angels. Thousands upon thousands. Okay, what are the angels doing? They're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Okay, there's that slain language again. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So, right now it's the angelic heavenly host worshiping Jesus. Whoever the four living creatures are, whoever the 24 elders are, and whoever the angels are, they're probably not people. 
They're angelic. But then there's one last group. Let's look at the last outer group. Verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What's the final crescendo in heaven going to look like at this time? We don't know when this is going to happen, but it's going to happen one day. What's the final, what's the biggest crescendo here? All. All creation. Now, here's, the, here's my theological question. Here's what I think is going to happen. We as believers are going to be in this throng, in the throne room, seeing Jesus in the flesh, bowing down and worshiping Him. But I also think those in hell will be bowing down to Jesus. Not because they're worshiping and loving Him, but because they have to because He's Lord. Because Philippians 2 says every knee will bow, every tongue confess, even those under the earth. They're not going to do it out of worship and reverence and joy. They're going to do it simply because he's Lord. But Jesus is going to get universal worship from the entire universe. Now, the joy of it is, is that we will be there among all the nations. So all color barriers, all racial barriers, all ethno-linguistics, all those barriers come crashing down in heaven. So if you do not like multicultural, multi-ethnic, loud worship, you're not going to like heaven. Because this is going to be loud. And it's going to be multi-ethnic. And who knows, there might be all different languages. There might be some serious speaking in tongues going on here because everybody may be doing it in their own language. I don't know how that's going to work in heaven. But... You could have, like, everybody in their native tongues worshiping Jesus. Like, we're over here as these little Americans singing our American songs and these other people. Think about that in heaven. What song are we going to... It could be that we're all singing the same song, but we're singing it in English and they're singing it in Swahili, but it's all the same thing. Or maybe we learn everybody's songs. Maybe in heaven we spend time, okay, here's the American songs, here's the, here's the 15th century, here's the Swahili. I don't know how that all works. Would it be possible that everyone will be singing in the same language? Yes, it probably is. Yeah. So maybe that's what... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. All we, we don't know how, there's a lot of mysteries about heaven's going to be. The thing about it is, is don't you want to be there? Yeah. I mean, don't, don't you live for that day? And so, notice how the very last refrain there is to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. It's praise to both God the Father and, and Jesus. Um, and so, as we think about Easter, as you think about ransom, as you think about what Christ has done, um, God has a plan that goes full circle. It started way back in Exodus. It's going through time. Right now, God's working out his plan. It even happened back with Boaz redeeming Ruth and bringing about David and bringing about Jesus. But that's the end, that's the end vision. That's the final day. That's what, that's what it's all going to culminate in is that final day when we are all in heaven at the throne room bowing down, worshiping Jesus with all of creation and we get to see him face to face. And what's the song in heaven going to be? You were slain. It's going to be singing about the blood of Christ. So here's my point. If that's what they're singing about in heaven, it's probably good that we mimic that in our songs here on earth to get ready for it. So as we sing songs about the cross and sing songs about His glory, 
Um, it's important that we get ready for the worship that's going to be in heaven. Loud, multi-ethnic, wonderful. All right. Now I'm actually done. Are there any questions or comments? Yes, Glenn. Uh, verse 13. What's the Greek for creature? Probably creature. I'd have to look. It up. I'd have to look it up. I mean, it could be. It could be an animal. It could be. An animal. I mean, it could very well be the animal kingdom. I think there's going to be animals in heaven, and here's why. Why would God be so creative in creating animals here? When you go to a zoo and see all the creative animals, why would we not have that in heaven to an even greater? There may be some animals in heaven that he's just waiting for us to get there. Like maybe C.S. Lewis had, had some insight in Narnia. with some I don't know. But I'm just saying why, why all the creative... Think about this for just a moment. All of the creativity and beauty and glory and majesty you just see on this planet that God has created here in a fallen world. Why wouldn't it be even greater in a perfect heaven? Taller mountains. It's going to be, it's going to be a material world. It's not just we're going to be floating around on clouds up there playing harps. It's, I mean, it's the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know. We'll have to wait till we get there. But I, I, I don't think God would go to the length of creating all different types of animals to not have them in heaven. Now, I'm not saying all dogs go to heaven and, like, you know, you're going to be reunited with your pet. I don't know. That's something that's probably, you know, that's a different, that's a different story. I mean, I'm not. But, but, I, but the main point is that it's going to be perfect and we're going to be in Christ's presence. So, Glenn, I don't know if that answers your question or if that was your... Deep insights, yeah. So, any other questions? Yes, Heather. Okay, so normally, you know, Bible verses help combat like our thought life, going back to the bitterness. Can yeah. you think of a good verse off the top of your head to memorize, like, if you struggle with bitterness? Yes. Um, I wish you, I wish the ladies over at that conference, the eight gates, the eight bars of, um, so go to Philippians 4, 8. Let's turn there real quick. What is it, the eight bars of, of yeah, that was a good. So go to Philippians 4.8. It's a good question, Heather. So Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So the command in that passage is to think about those things. So you've got a grid. If you start getting bitter thoughts or bitter attitudes, pull that verse up and start going through that list. Is what I'm thinking... Is what I'm thinking true? If it's not, I need to get that thought out. Is what I'm thinking honorable? And you can just maybe start looking at that, and then as those negative, bitter thoughts come, you replace those with thoughts about who God is and who you are in Christ and things like that, and ask the Holy Spirit to take those. Does that help you? Okay. That's, that's probably... Like a good grid. So any thought that comes in, take it through that grid of those eight things and say, okay, is what I'm thinking, what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, does it match what I'm supposed to be thinking about? And if not, I need to get it out and think about something that is worthy.